Good morning. Joy to be here with you this morning. Last time I was with you, we were in the other building just across the lot there. But thank, thank you for allowing us to come again this morning. And I trust uh, two weeks ago we had Stephen McCurdy here. He's a very loyal, faithful friend of ours and works with us in the church. And he's a good, good man. And uh, thank God for him as well. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for having us. It's a joy to be here. It really is. I want to go to Psalm 113. Can I bring that up just a touch? Yeah. That's good. Thanks. Psalm 113. I'm just going to read it through in the version that I have in front of me. And it reads as follows. Hallelujah. Or that might say in the Bible, you have praised the Lord. And let's understand that that is a command to you. There's going to find out reasons why we should be praising the Lord. But there is a command. It is that command is... Praise the Lord. Then it goes on to say, Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the Lord's name. May the Lord's name be blessed now and forevermore. From the place the sun rises to where it sets, praised be the name of the Lord. Have you heard that phrase, the name of the Lord, yet? Three times already. Verse 4 says, High over all nations, the Lord over the heavens, His glory. Who is like the Lord our God? Who sits high above, who sees down below in the heavens and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. From the dung heaps, he lifts the needy. To seat him among princes, among the princes of his people. He seats the barren woman in her home, a happy mother of sons. Come on now, praise the Lord. Well, have you and I got any reasons to praise the Lord? You are commanded at the beginning of this psalm, and you are commanded at the end of this psalm. You are to open your mouth, to lift your hands, to lift your heart, and lift your soul, and you are to give God praise. Amen? And it's all about the name of the Lord. Now, Psalm 113, let me put this in context for you. I like reading every... Text in context. Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118 form a group of psalms that are referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. And you might on earth ask me the question, what on earth is an Egyptian Hallel? In the Old Testament, when they celebrated Passover, every year they celebrated Passover... At the Passover meal, they had to study 
sang and recite what is called the Egyptian Hallel. These are the psalms that every Jew would be reciting and talking about at Passover time. And when it says in the New Testament at the Last Supper that Jesus rose up and they sang a song, what do you think they were singing? It would be singing these particular psalms. And so all of this is rooted in the story of the Passover. It's rooted in the story of the Exodus. So as we go through this psalm, I want you to think of the story of the Exodus. Have you got it in your mind, 400 years of captivity of slavery? Have you got it in your mind, the 10 plagues? Have you got it in your mind how God appeared to Moses at a burning bush and sent him to confront Pharaoh, let my people go? Do you see the Nile River turning to blood? Do you see the plague of frogs and the lice and, oh, you don't even want to mention them, the horrible plagues? Do you see Pharaoh finally letting them go? Do you see them getting to the Red Sea? Do you see Pharaoh coming after them to destroy them at the Red Sea? Do you see the Red Sea opening and them going across into freedom? And do you see the Red Sea coming in upon Pharaoh's army and drowning them? And if you've got that whole story in your mind, because when you celebrated Passover, that's what you were remembering. And as Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, that's probably a good deal of what they were talking about. And these are the very Psalms that they speak. And all of these Psalms, 113 to 118, is all about the story of celebrating the Exodus. Now, during the Passover meal, they had various cups that they would drink. And at the first cup that they drank, they would read and sing and meditate and discuss Psalm 113. Right in the middle of this psalm, verse number 5, you have the key to this psalm, and they ask a question, Who is like the Lord our God? Do you have an answer for that? To what can you compare him? Who is like the Lord our God? Do you remember in that Exodus story when they crossed the Red Sea? When the army was drowned behind them, that Miriam took the tambourine and led the women in a dance and they sang a song. And in that song, they asked that very same question. You can find it in Exodus 15, verse 11. You can find it where they, here it is. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Let me ask you this question. If you were there at the Red Sea, if you had come through on the other side, if you had witnessed this stupendous power of God in the ten plagues and the destruction of Egypt and the destruction of the, the, the army that's out to destroy you, and you came across completely free, set free after four centuries of slavery in such a dramatic way, would you not ask that same question? Is there any other God like our God? Is there any other name, is there any other God that can produce this kind of power? And you'd be in awe 
and you'll be in wonder at the great power of God. So the middle of the psalm asks the question, Who is like the Lord our God? Let's explore the psalm and get the answer to that question. And reflecting on how God has delivered us, who is like the Lord our God? There's a reason that I'm meditating on this psalm, because back home in our church in Ballymena, over the last uh, few years, we've had occasion to minister to people in very difficult and dire backgrounds and circumstances. Uh, I've had to deal with a lot of issues of, of sexual abuse and people trying to recover from the pain and the torture of a ruined life because they were abused as children and so on. And they have given their stories, testimonies, they've made it public, their stories. But let me tell you, I want the God that we serve is a God who gets down in the sewers with people. I want to say that again. The God that we serve, that we worship and that we love, as great and mighty as He is, He is the same God that comes and walks through the sewers of life to bring people out of it. I want you to think upon that because this world is a needy place. People's lives are messed up. I believe in a message of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just about getting people to go to heaven when they die. It's about transforming lives in their present existence. Pushing back the powers of darkness. Undoing the effects of sin. Cleaning them up from the sewers that they find themselves in. That is the God that we serve and that is the God that is celebrated in this particular psalm. The first part of this verse, of these, this psalm, how many times did we hear that you're to bless the name of the Lord? Let's understand that phrase in the light of the story of the Exodus. The name of the Lord, you're to praise it. The servants of the Lord are to praise His name. You are to praise His name at all time. And in all places. That's what this, this psalm is teaching us. You remember when God appeared to Moses at a burning bush. That God re- partly began to reveal what his name was. When he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Remember Moses asked the question. Well who will I say has sent me? What is the name? What is your name? Who can I tell you that sent me? And you know, at that point, he said, well, let me tell you what my name is. My name is I am that I am. Now, in the ancient Near East culture in which the Bible is written, we have to understand that names have meaning. If your name is John, it's not just John. (laughs) It has a meaning. There is always, in the naming of a child, there's always a prophetic meaning to it. And when God changes your name, there's prophetic meaning to it. You remember in the story of creation, when God brought all the animals to Adam, for what purpose? To give them 
a name, and whatever name he gave them became the characteristic of what that animal would be. Names have prophetic meaning. Names tell you the nature of something. Name tells you the character of something. Names tell you what you are. Names are very, very prophetic. I'm glad my mother didn't name me Jacob. Hope there's nobody named Jacob in the room. Because when Jacob got that name, that means you are just one schemer. You are a trickster. You are a deceiver. You are a manipulator. Now, how many are glad you didn't get named Jacob? How many do you know anybody named Jacob? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is kind of, kind of a scary thing. You know, we start talking about this. But you know, I've been, as David said, I've been in Africa many, many times. And it's, it's amazing the, the names that Africans give their children at times. And can you imagine being called mistake? What do you think the consequences, the circumstance of that birth was? And you carry the name mistake your whole life. How about if you were named never? Can you imagine giving a child the name never? Now, that sounds awful, but it was awful funny at his wedding. When he was giving his, making his wedding vows, he says, I never take you to be my wife. <laughs> you know? but, but can you just imagine? Names have meaning, and names shape a person's life. There's power. There's prophetic meaning in given names. And so what is the name of the Lord? Because if you can know the name of the Lord, you know his character, you know the essence of his being, you know his nature, it speaks about what his life is. What is the name of the Lord? And when Moses asked the Lord at the burning bush, what's your name? Yahweh, Jehovah, or in your words, I am that I am. The all-powerful, self-existent one I am that I am. I want you to come back to that in a minute. Because as we worked our way through the psalm, as we read the psalm, we heard, we read that the Lord is high in the heavens. We read, we read how He's over all the nations. He's exalted. He's, uh, what's the word, imminent? What's the word I'm looking for? He's, he's transcendent. He's this mighty, mighty God who created the heavens and the earth. But when it says he stoops down to look, and if you could read this in the Hebrew language, that God is so highly exalted that to see in the heavens, he's got to really stoop down low just to see into the heavens. Now, I don't know where you think heaven is. I don't know how high you think heaven is. But that, this psalm says God is so high that he has to bend down really low even just to see into the heavens. He is a majestic God. And yet, who does he focus on? He doesn't focus on the mighty nations of the world. He doesn't focus on the rich or the powerful or the elite or the government leaders, the bankers, the financiers of this world, the business people who make it big in this world, he doesn't concentrate on those people at all. 
because as he looks at all those definitions of might, as far as what the world will give, God simply is not impressed. He says, you don't know what high means until you sit where I sit. He is not impressed with anything that this world can come out with in terms of might, military power, finances, whatever. God is simply not impressed with anything. If he has to stoop to see into the heavens, then how far has he got to go to see what's going on on earth? This is what this psalm is teaching. The greatest powers in this world are not even worth a mention because the question is this, who is like the Lord our God? And we discover in this psalm that all the mighty nations of the world, with all their money, their power, their wealth, their whatever they do, they're not even worth mentioning when it comes to comparing to the name of the Lord. The Lord's high above the nations, and His glory is even well beyond even the heavens. Now, I want you to think what that means. Put yourself in as, as an Israelite in captivity in Egypt. Put yourself in their shoes. And you're going to hear a revelation of a mighty God who has come to set you free from the powers of <coughs> Egypt. You have been there for over four centuries as slaves. And you're going to hear this message of the name of God, of the nature of God, and Pharaoh in all his pomp and ceremony and all his might is not even a worthy comparison to the God who has come to the sewers of life to lift you up. I don't know who your enemies are. I don't know what forces come against you in your life. I want to tell you this, that I'm talking this morning about a God. Well, look at what His name means. I'm talking to you about a God that your problems and your enemies and the powers of darkness that want to keep you in the sewers of life are not even worthy to be compared with the awesomeness of this God we're talking about. Now, I'm Pentecostal in nature, which means it's all right to shout amen <laughs> and hallelujah and to rejoice about these things. So I'm going to say it again. The God that we are talking about today, He is so far above, so transcendent, that no matter what power holds you in bondage, there isn't even a remote comparison between them who is like the Lord, our God. I want that to dwell, get, get that into your heart and into your spirit. Just think, the, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they had to deal with Egypt, but God set them free from Egypt. They had to deal with Babylon, but God set them free from Babylon. They had to deal with Assyria. They had to deal with Persia. They had to deal with Greece. They had to deal with Rome. But none of these mighty worldwide empires have anything to even remotely compare themselves with, with the Lord. Who is like the Lord our God? He is high above it all.
Amen? He is high above it all. So the Bible says, we used to sing this song years ago. Well, date us if I start singing this one. But it goes from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. The name of the Lord is to be praised. How many are old enough to know that one? <laughs> There's a few hands going up. You're afraid so, that's right. You know, but from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So I have been privileged over the years, as David has shared, I've traveled a lot. I, I spent, I don't know how many years globe trotting and, and doing missions all around the world and been so many countries. But in what country? I've been to Zimbabwe, I don't know, nine, ten times. I've been to Zambia, Belarus, Ukraine, here in the UK, Russia, a place called Prednestrovia, Burkina Faso, Canada, you name it. I've been to so many places around the world. But is there any place anywhere in the world, present or past, or even coming in the future, is there any power in the world that can even begin to remotely compare with the power of our God? Is there? There isn't. There is no enemy that can stand against the power of the Lord. And so if you are in bondage, and you have been under the dominion of some power for all this time, I've got good news for you. The God we are talking about is so infinitely above all of this that there is not a comparison that can even be made. Our God is great. Amen? Our God is great. Psalm 8 and verse 1 puts it this way, How majestic or how excellent is your name? Where? In all the earth. He is a mighty God. He is to be praised through all time. That's what this says. He's to be praised in every place, in all space. Because when we talk about time and we talk about space, as this psalm does, neither category is big enough. Time or space, neither category is big enough to hold our God. That's who we are talking about here. This majestic, mighty, powerful God. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47 verse 2 says. When Solomon built that temple, as magnificent as it would be to you and me, I mean, it would be overpowering for you and I to see the, the largeness and the silver and the gold that went into that place. As majestic as that is in the sight of men, King Solomon still had to make this confession that I've made this house for you, but what is that to you? Because even the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. I want you to think how large he is, how big he is, how glorious he is, how transcendent he is, how awesome he is. This is one mighty God. Psalm 99.1 says he sits between the wings of the cherubim. That means he's exalted above all earthly powers. He's exalted above all heavenly powers. It means all the combined power and the military and political power in the world, to, according to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, to God that is just a drop in the bucket. It is the mere dust on the balances. Our God 
is a great God. Therefore, we are to praise the name of the Lord. So when he looks at all the elite and the powerful of the world, he is totally unimpressed. I'll say that again. He is totally unimpressed. I'll say it again. All the might of this world, when God sees it, he is totally unimpressed by it. That's the God that we're connecting with here today and we're worshiping today. But let me tell you, while God is not impressed with that, let me tell you what he is impressed with. Anybody want to know? This psalm tells us what he's impressed with. He stoops to look not just to the heavens, but he stoops even deeper and lower to look down in the earth. Now, that, what a condescension that is to our mighty God. What a lowering of himself. He looks so low and so deep, and you know what he's looking for. And why does he look down to the earth? What is he attracted to? This mighty God. Why does he do this? Well, it's because of who he is. Let's go back to the story of Moses when he said, Who sent me? After the story that they're out through the Red Sea, and after Israel commits the sin of the golden calf, and after Moses has to intercede for God's forgiveness for what Israel has just done after they have been so dramatically delivered, and as he negotiates with God, as he wrestles with God in prayer, he, he cries out, Lord, show me your glory. Reveal to me your ways. I want to know you. You have done something this world has never seen. The world has never, the, the, those plagues upon Egypt have been unparalleled in history. It's never been done before, never been seen before. God proved himself to be a mighty, majestic God, unimpressed with Egypt, no contest whatsoever, brings the people out victoriously. They're all on the other side of the Red Sea. And now Moses is praying that God forgive the people for the sin of the golden calf. And he keeps negotiating with God in prayer. And it's okay, show me your glory. Reveal to me your ways. There's no, who is like this God? There's no God this powerful, dramatic, no God mighty like this. Who are you? Let me know who you are. I want to know you. Folks, if you have been touched by the almighty power of God, I hope it wakes up in you a sense. I've got to know this God. I've got to develop relationship with him. I've got to press in to know him intimately, the one who is so dramatically powerful on my behalf. He cries out, Lord, show me your glory. And then what happens? In Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 7, Moses gets his answer. And this is what God said to Moses. I'm going to put you up in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to cause my glory to pass by you. And there... I'm going to proclaim to you my name. Wait a second, Psalm 113. What are you supposed to be blessing? What are you praising? 
What are you remembering? The name of the Lord. And so as the glory of God passes by Moses, God declares these words, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. How many can say praise God for that? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Can you imagine steadfast love for thousands? You know, I, I, I'm sure you've all heard some of this teaching. I don't buy it whatsoever. Going public, I don't care. Generational curses, I just think it's a pile of nonsense the way they put that together. But let me tell you what this says. When it comes, to, you know, remember third and fourth generation? I like this better, where God keeps love for a thousand generations. That's far better than three and four, my friend. He keeps mercy for a thousand generations. That's our God. That is our God. So no wonder Moses has to bow his head quickly and begin to worship. No wonder when we're celebrating Passover or when you're going to celebrate the Lord's table in the New Testament, when you're going to do that, you're going to remember the name of the Lord because this is the nature of this God that came down from his majestic, lofty, transcendent position so high that he has to stoop down to see the heavens. He has come down to our captivity, to the sewers we find ourselves in. Why? Because that's his name. That's his nature. Notice here that this revelation of God didn't say anything about his power. But the revelation of God said everything about his character and his nature. No wonder we are told, come on, servants of the Lord, praise the Lord's name. May the Lord's name be blessed now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. What is the name of the Lord? I am that I am. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the Lord's name. That's why, even though he's so transcendent and majestic, that he stoops down to the sewer pits of life on earth to rescue people because that's who he is. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? So verses 7 to 9 of this psalm, we shift from the heavens, and we're now down paying our attention to the earth. Now, while the beginning of the psalm teaches this, that it's his glory that fills the heavens, do you know what it is that fills the earth? Listen carefully. His glory fills the heavens, but it's his mercy and it's his loving kindness that fills the earth below. And how many can go praise God for that? 
It's his mercy and loving kindness that fills this earth below. He stoops down. His nature is this because this is his name. He stoops down to the very dust of the earth where he on purpose goes to search out the needy. And he searched out the person that is bruised and bleeding and hurt and brokenhearted. He passes the mighty nations because he's unimpressed by them. And he's on the lookout for people who are hurt and bleeding and dying. Why? That's his name. The only reason there is an Exodus story is because that's his name. That's his name. God is not attracted to the impressive, what God is attracted to is to the lowliness. He's attracted to the hurting, the bruised, and the broken. That's his name. How low does he stoop? How low does this God go? This is almighty God. This is unchallengeable God. This is the transcendent God. And according to the old King James Bible, he stoops down to the dung heap. Now, if I wanted to be vulgar and crude, I could use different words. So I'll just say sewers instead. He walks through the dung heaps to find people who have been so hurt and so bruised that that's what now identifies their life. That is the God we are talking about. Listen, he who sits upon the throne high above the heavens, is the same God who has chosen to sit with me in the dung heaps. Are you catching this? Who is this God that we're worshiping? Who is this God that we're going to reach out in faith and touch? Who is this mighty God that demands a reaction of faith from us? Folks, he is worth fighting through to touch him. What's your circumstance? What's your obstacle? Are you a woman with an issue of blood that's got to press through a crowd to touch him? Who are we worshiping this morning? Who is in this room right here and now with us? Who is this God? He is a mighty God. And why does he do this? Because that's his name. That's his name. He cares for the poor, the helpless, because that's his name. He is exalted. And so what he does is he stoops down to the sewers where we are so that he can exalt us to where he is. Folks, do you have any idea what it means when you read in the scripture that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, considering where we all come from, and he sits us with himself in heavenly places. He makes us to sit where where princes sit. He takes a barren woman and gives her a family. That's the kind of king that God is. He is so exalted, but he is not only transcendent, but he's also what's called imminent. His transcendence, his exaltedness, his high loftiness does not make him aloof from your day-to-day life. Because of what his name is, this exalted one condescends and gets involved with you in the sewers of life. Wow. Wow. My goodness. He stoops to the very bottom of the bottom 
to raise those who are bowed down, the rejected, the helpless, the poor, the bruised, and the broken by this world. Now God is attracted to that, and he bypasses an impressive world on the way to get to us. That is his nature. The God who controls the entire universe, listen to this one. The God who controls the entire universe is concerned about the petty things of your life. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. Can you believe that he makes us kings and priests unto our God? Can you imagine that? What is it like to be raised up? Why don't you have an interview with Joseph from the book of Genesis? He went from Pharaoh's prison to Pharaoh's advisor. Did God not raise somebody up from the bottom and make him sit right at the top? What about Daniel? Why don't you talk to him about from changing from a captive, carried off in captivity, to becoming advisor to Nebuchadnezzar and kings after that? What about a guy named Mordecai? In the book of Esther, that ends up exalted to be second in command of the whole Persian Empire, just under the king Ahasuerus. Why don't you have a conversation with Job, who literally was sitting on the dung heaps, and how God came to him. That is our God. So so when this psalm says, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, this is a command. Maybe you should ask Hannah what this means. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah says the very same things as Psalm 113 says. Now, Psalm 113 talks about the barren woman and God giving her many sons and giving her a home. That's the story of Hannah. She couldn't bear any children. She cried out to the Lord and God answered her prayer and gave her Samuel, but he gave her more than Samuel. gave her other sons even after that. And she cried out with these words, the same words as Psalm 113. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is nobody beside you. The hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has now have seven children. He raises the poor from the dust. He lives the beggar from the ash heaps and sets him among princes and makes them inherit the throne of glory. I have a saying that I love to say back to our church in Balamina. Folks, the end of the story is glory. I hope you know what your destiny is. You have been called from this earth and you will inherit the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of the story is glory and that's where you are headed. Think of the children of Israel in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. God who dwells on high looked down upon the earth. He saw the needy and the poor Israelites in slavery in Egypt. He raised them up from the dunghills and placed them in the dwellings of princes. He saw Israel as being barren and gave her children and gave her a place to dwell in. They went from captivity under Egypt to the great kingdom under King David and King Solomon, the greatest in the world at the time. Listen, shame has been exchanged for honor. Listen, degradation has yielded to fruitfulness. Why? Because of the name of the Lord. 
because he is a God who stoops. When he looked out upon Egypt, he said these words in Exodus 3, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I know their sufferings, and I have come down. Listen to that phrase. God says, I have come down. Let me say it again. He's the high and majestic Holy One that has to stoop to look into the heavens, and He comes down, to looks at you in the dung heaps, and He says, I have come down. That is our God. I've come down to deliver you from the Egyptians, to bring you out into the, to a land, into a good and a broad place. Who is like this God? Who is like Him? Do you know anybody else who will combine such majesty with such condescension? This is God's nature. And perhaps the greatest thought for me is this. When Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples at that last supper, they began the meal by discussing this psalm. Because he has come down, made himself of no reputation. He didn't lose his reputation. He made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, became a servant, yielded to death. He went to the lowest of the lowest of all creation because that's who he is. So you and I could be raised up to be where he is. That is God's name. That's why there's an Exodus story. That's why there's a Jesus dying on the cross. That's why there's a Jesus being raised from the dead because that is his name. He is one awesome God. Therefore, the psalm ends as it began. Praise the Lord as a command. Hallelujah. So I think we should sing again and praise the name of the Lord. And we've got reason to praise Him, don't we? He is a good God. So bless you. Thank you so much.